This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. All right, welcome everybody. I am Tim Parati, and I am as always joined by my colleague Drew Dockin, and we are thrilled to have Torsten Slock with us today, Chief uh, Economist at Apollo and former Chief Economist at Deutsche Bank, uh, where we once worked together. Um, uh, Drew, you know Torsten, but Torsten, just so you know, Drew works with me uh, in marketing at WealthVest, and uh, Drew writes a lot of white papers, and Drew's got a background um, where he, he studied at the graduate level at Fudan University in Shanghai, and he's kind of well-versed and keenly interested in all things uh, Asia and all things geopolitical. Um, you know, Torsten, when we worked together at Deutsche Bank, one thing I always remember is you didn't need any help from sales. I came to you when I was in research management, and I said, nobody from sales is doing anything for you. I'm sorry, Torsten. And you said, yeah, that's the last thing I want. I got too many meetings. I got too much demand on my time as it is. Please keep sales away from pitching me to anybody. But I think it just, it speaks to you. were II number one uh, in economics, if I have that correct. And uh, there was an endless demand to hear your thoughts. So we at uh, Little Wealth Nest in Bozeman, uh, Montana, are thrilled uh, that you would spend some time with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited. All right, Drew, why don't you kick it off? All right, great. Uh, thanks, Torsten. Very looking forward to this as well. You know, on your website and the Daily Spark, you're talking really about your no landing thesis. You mentioned a bunch of factors, used car prices, strong labor, uh, you know, strong housing. So let's kind of get into these factors and, and explain that thesis a little bit more. Yeah, so uh, what's very important is, of course, that last year inflation went up and it peaked in June at 9.1%. And the inflation numbers that we just got here for January showed that inflation is now down to 6.4%. So inflation is coming down from nine to six. That's the good news. The problem is that this was the low hanging fruit. In other words, we are now getting into crunch time where can we get inflation all the way back to the Fed's 2% target? And there is a very substantial debate, as I know both of you have covered also so well at WealthWest, where there is a discussion about, will we see markets be turbulent in the process of going down to 2%? Will this be an easy ride? Where will we be back to 2% inflation very quickly? This debate is very, very significant and very important for financial markets. And obviously, the soft landing would be a quick move down to 2% in the next six months no problems with inflation anymore and we will all move on and say this was just something that came around because of the pandemic nothing to worry about anymore then there for a long time has been the expectation of a hard landing or a recession a lot of people in particular larry summers paul krugman others have said we need a recession to get inflation back to two percent but in my view i think that there's a third scenario that's beginning to play out and that's what you're exactly highlighting drew here that I still think there's a scenario now where with the latest employment report being so strong for January, where we created 517,000 jobs, the unemployment rate went down. We've saw the participation rate go up. We saw the work week go up. We've seen jobless claims, the number of people filing for unemployment benefits still very low, meaning the number of people in the labor market that are looking for jobs is still very substantial with a very, very strong data point on the labor market being strong. And at the same time, Inflation only very gradually now beginning to move lower, in particular the data for January. I am 
coming to the conclusion that I still think investors should be a bit more cautious on the market and on risk, meaning equities and credit, because it looks like we are going through a no landing scenario where we need higher levels of interest rates before we get inflation all the way down to 2%. So the bottom line, and sorry for giving a very long answer, but it happens to be very important for, for our conversation, that setting this stage, it really is the case that we had an inflation problem in 2022. And unfortunately, it looks like that inflation problem has not been resolved. So what we should worry about is that the trading environment we had last year might be at risk of coming back, where the 60-40 portfolio will be more vulnerable with rates going up more and equities going down further. Right. So is the biggest piece of pushback you get on on those who were more bearish on the trajectory of the economy that would have those who would have expected maybe negative GDP prints by now or are still very much expecting negative GDP prints in the first half of 23? Absolutely. So I think actually that's exactly the case that we would have thought. I would also have thought. Remember, Tim, when you and I were working through the great financial crisis in the beginning, and I was on the economic side and I was the research side, I was saying, oh, this will probably be a soft landing, and it turned out to be a lot harder landing. So in the beginning, people here said, well, now we will have a harder landing because we have seen rates go up and we've seen slowdowns before. So it's almost the opposite here now that everyone was expecting a recession and came into this year expecting a recession and therefore came into this year underweight equities, underweight credit. So when the recession didn't materialize and when the data actually has turned out to be better than really anyone expected, Investors were scrambling to catch up with their benchmarks because they were underweight equities and now had to fill up more equities because equities continue to do so well. So exactly the long and variable lags uh, that you have also talked uh, a lot about on the previous episodes here are very important component that we would have expected the economy to slow down, but it just hasn't happened. And that's why I think we need now to re like, sort of revisit our views, all of us, and say, okay, if the economy maybe is not going into recession, maybe I should be still more defensively positioned because maybe then the Fed is not quite done with raising interest rates. Right. And the answer here is not that this is immaculate disinflation. It is that it just is taking longer. And by taking longer, the Fed has to stay in place for longer. So you're not arguing that there's not going to be a recession, I assume. You're arguing that there still probably will be a recession, but it may be 2024. Yeah, that's exactly right, because there's a very important reason why the economy is not slowing down, and it has to do with the following. When interest rates go up, what is hit in the economy, what's hit in GDP, are the interest rate sensitive components of GDP. So initially we saw housing slow down, that's very sensitive to interest rates. We saw the auto sector or the car sales numbers slow down, that's very sensitive to interest rates because it requires financing to buy a car. We saw the sectors of the S&P 500 slow down, they were also sensitive to interest rates, so that's durable goods, meaning washers, dryers, furniture, anything that requires financing is sensitive to interest rates. And therefore, when the Fed raised rates, we saw those sectors of the economy really start to slow down. But the issue is that those sectors only make up 20% of GDP. Yeah. If we look at services, look at yeah. airlines, still very strong, restaurants, still very strong, hotels, very strong. If you look at how many people go to sporting events, to concerts, we also track how many people go to Broadway shows. This is weekly data. You can get this on, uh, in the public domain. And that's, of course, also telling you that there is really not much of a slowdown in the service sector. And that's where all the hiring in the employment report in January, it was in the service sector that makes up 80% of GDP. So therefore, the answer to your question, Tim, is that we're waiting for the service sector to also slow down. And we're just not quite seeing that. And in the meantime, we will see 
the good sector and the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy slow down, but we're waiting for the service sector to slow and it's just not happening. We're still really strong employment numbers, very low unemployment and about 11 million job openings. As, as you know, of course, all yeah, too well, yeah. we have about two job openings for every unemployed person at the moment. That's a very, very tight labor market. And it's just not showing signs of that slowdown that we're waiting for it. But it will likely come sometime in 2024 once Fed rates and interest rates get up even further and really succeed in cooling the economy down. Yeah. Some of the consumer demand numbers that you just ran through, they really are kind of extraordinary. I mean, I, I really feel like anybody who lived through 08, 09, who looks at the yield curve, who looks at any liquidity statistic that you want to look at, who looks at the trajectory of housing, would have said, we've got to be in a recession by now or, or, or rapidly moving into one. But what is different in this cycle is this resilience of paychecks. And now we're getting into where we've got real, not just nominal, but real wage growth. Do you think that is the big difference in the cycle that people have gotten wrong, this persistence of wage growth? Yeah, I do think so, because I think that the surprise is that the job market is still strong. I mean, we created more than 500,000 jobs in January. Wage growth is still high. And very importantly, there's also still a lot of savings left across the income distribution in the economy. That means that if you look at how much did people have in their checking accounts before the pandemic relative to how much do they have in checking accounts today, across the entire income distribution, it is the case still today that the level, meaning cumulatively for each cohort across the income distribution, the level of money that people have in their checking accounts, the balances are higher for the low income, for the middle income and high income households. So I think there's a very significant tailwind that is supporting consumer spending. And that's why retail sales is likely to continue to do well over the next several months. The consumer is just not slowing down simply because remember consumption is no longer only on autos and on housing. It's also remember the biggest part of everyone's consumption is the consumption on services. Again, restaurants, travel, hotels, transportation, yeah. and those things still continue to look quite good. Yet leisure travel is picking up here. Yeah, and I exactly, and I, and the airline CEOs through the last earnings season have said this is the best earnings season we've had. So I, I think that uh, we just need to see the consumer slow down and, and let's connect this. Why is this important for markets? Well, the reason why this is important for markets is that this service sector of the economy is in plain English overheating. And if that's overheating, that means that demand for services is very strong. And that means that inflation in services is going to be strong. So that means that the bottom line is if inflation, again, which in round numbers today is around six, there's some issues whether you measure core or headline inflation, but it's around six. And the Fed's goal is you should be five. So if you go from then five and then down to two, if you then don't get down to two very quickly and it's going to take some time, we might stick around at five then you run the risk that the Fed will simply have to raise rates more and need to step on the brakes. In plain English, the Fed needs to slow down earnings. The Fed needs to slow down consumption, slow down hiring, slow down capex spending to achieve the goal of getting inflation down. So the bottom line is, if the inflation problem is not yet solved, and it looks, in my view, like it's not yet solved, then investors should still be more defensively positioned, in particular from a cyclical perspective. Right, and I assume you don't believe, given you know, the services is such a big part of the economy, wages are such a big part of services, that there's not a scenario where we see four or 5% persistent wage growth and we get to the Fed's target and we can, because you did have that period in the late 90s where you had this high, of course it was followed by a recession, maybe that's what had to happen, but how much wage growth could we have without too much upward pressure so the Fed can, can at least uh, take its foot off the gas? 
Yeah, this is really important, right. in particular for equity investors, because if we have wage growth at, remember before the pandemic, wage growth in round numbers for 10 years was around two, two and a half. So now if wage growth for the next several years, let's just assume that that will be around five, which is where it is today. Well, the problem with that would be that that would begin to eat into margins. In other words, the E in the PE ratio would begin to be under pressure. And if earnings begin to take a hit, it, we are at a level where corporate margins are close to record highs. So there is some room to see some margin compression. But the problem is that if wage growth is much higher than the price of the products that companies are selling for an extended period, you would by definition see margin compress and you would therefore by definition also see the E and the PE ratio earnings begin to move lower. So therefore we need, and this is the Fed challenge, we need basically stable prices everywhere, including wages, including prices of products that are sold. And we just can't have that at levels of four, five, six, seven percent for an extended period. That's why the Fed is carefully trying to engineer the soft landing and they are just not succeeding quite yet. Apparently with the numbers we have more recently, they still need to raise interest rates more before we get that slowdown. Yeah. And then we can debate later this year whether there will be a hard landing or soft landing. But for now, it looks definitely like a no landing. Meaning the economy is just not slowing down with all these jobs being created and inflation still being elevated. Torsten, uh, one thing I'd be very curious to ask you is, I know you were with the IMF on a division. I'm writing for the World Economic Outlook. You're responsible for China, Hong Kong, Mongolia. Um, obviously, the relationship bilaterally with the U.S. and China has changed significantly over the past 10, 15 years. One that's becoming increasingly from disinflationary to more protectionist between the two countries. I'm wondering how does this like misalignment, what's that mean for global equity markets and just kind of growth in general? Yeah, no, this is very important. And I know you lived in uh, China, so I, I know you have a lot of respect for your views and I know how important this is for all of us. So I would say there's a number of different dimensions. The first dimension is that with China reopening, you would have expected to see commodity prices go up. I'm surprised that energy prices have not gone up more, base metal prices have not gone up more, and food prices have not gone up more. In fact, most of these different components of the CRB or commodity price index have really just moved sideways. So I would expect over the next several quarters to see quite a boost to commodity prices, and in particular energy prices as China reopens. Beyond the next several quarters, I do and I completely agree with everything you're saying, also view this as a bigger risk that uh, there is more segmentation in the global economy where you will simply have that Russia and China and other economies might be more isolated in a number of different dimensions. And that's, of course, also beginning to open up some questions about, well, what about globalization that has been such an important force in both holding inflation down, but also an important force in getting quote unquote, cheap products and cheap energy into Europe and the US. And I do think that we are beginning to see some reversal or some deglobalization where the risks are that instead of having downward pressure on inflation because of the whole world then helping in exporting and importing things where they are done most cheap, then now we're running the risk that maybe if there is more segmentation of global trade, we run the risk that there might also be upward pressure on inflation coming from no longer having so much imports from in, in emerging markets more broadly, but in particular uh, China. So the answer to your question is I think that there are both some issues in the near term with the uh, reopening, but I think that there are also some long-term issues about global glo growth being weaker because of less globalization and also global inflation, and most notably, of course, US and European inflation being higher because now things have to be onshoring, friendshoring, nearshoring, being done more domestically and closer to home rather than abroad. 
you know, Turk, I want to go back to something you were talking about earlier, that the way the cycle's got to work is that you've got to see an impact to profits. And it, it's not until that point, until companies are seeing profit margins come in and the top line come in, that they start to lay off workers. It, it, in the fourth quarter, we did. We, we are starting to see estimates coming down. You're starting to see numbers for the S&P in 2023 come down, especially when you pull energy out of it. That so you do expect that once we see that we continue. I assume you think we will continue to see that, and then at that point you'll start to see it in the employment data, and maybe then at that point could you? Is there a prospect of a recession? Hundred percent. I completely agree with that scenario. That we are beginning to see earnings and earnings expectations come down. If you look at the twelve month forward EPS expectations to this and P five hundred, that's gradually coming lower. Exactly as you're saying, because we're beginning to see earnings gradually come lower. The only issue is if it's coming down quick enough. In other words, when we still have inflation at around five six percent, we still need some more slowdown. And the biggest fear probably at the Fed and the biggest risk for the Fed and for interest rate markets is that if inflation does not come down and if inflation numbers are not driven lower by lower earnings and lower consumption and lower capex spending, then that does mean that the Fed would look at that and say, okay, um, we still will need to raise interest rates a bit more to make sure that we do get that slowdown to ultimately get inflation to come down to 2%. So in my view, it all starts and ends with the problem that inflation today in very round numbers is 5%. We need to get to 2%. And it looks like the lowest hanging fruit has been picked here where we have now right. come down from 9 to, to 5 6%. But that means that if there is now a more sticky period with inflation, inflation persistence, where wage inflation is still high because the labor market is not slowing down, even housing inflation, because the housing market is also beginning to look a little bit better on traffic of prospective buyers increasing. The sentiment indicator from the NASB, National Association of Home Builders, is also looking better. Even appetite for buying a car is beginning to look a little bit better. All those things may mean that we could have more sticky and persistent inflation, and therefore inflation that doesn't quite get back to 2%. And that's when I think the Fed will need to then step a little bit harder on the brakes to slow down the earnings growth relative to, as you're saying, Tim, the slowdown that we have already seen. Yeah, before we wrap up, I, I know we, we're very focused on demographics, and I know Drew wants to ask you about demographics. But just quickly, on, on the housing side, I mean, it, it's still, to me, I don't see how we have a bottom in housing here. When Just when you've doubled the cost of capital and affordability is where it is. Are, are you saying that you think there actually could be a bottom in housing or just that there could be a persistence that's greater than what everybody thought? You're right that the, the, the momentum to the downside in the housing market is indeed quite strong at the moment. The only thing that I think is noteworthy is that there's a number of indicators, including several I just mentioned, uh, that are suggesting that maybe the spring selling season here could suggest that if both mortgage rates peaked at seven and a half, now they're down to roughly six and a half. That's not much, but it's at least an improvement that's big enough to begin to make at least some indicators look a little bit better. Uh, but you're right, the momentum has been very strong. So maybe what we're debating really here is that there is maybe some flattening out in the speed with which the housing market momentum is beginning to slow. So I still think we're not out of the woods on the housing front, but I do think that the, if we still create 500,000 jobs in January, and I don't expect that for the next several yeah. months, but if we expect just one, two, 300,000 jobs created every month, that's a very important indicator for how many people are out there looking for homes. And combined with immigration also beginning to pick up over the last 18 months, and also generally speaking, wage inflation is still strong, then I still think that, uh, that we have probably seen the worst 
behind us in the housing market, that doesn't mean that everything is turning around here in the next few months. But with the spring selling season and the calendar from that perspective helping us, I still think that um, things could begin to look a bit better over the next at least six to 12 months. I think that the housing market will begin to stabilize. We've talked about like inflation a lot, you know, obviously from monetary policy and then there's been supply constraints with COVID um, and everything related to that. But one aspect we focus on a lot, Wealthus, especially Tim, is really how the developed world is aging and what does that mean for workers and in, um, inflation. And even if you look at the United States in particular, outside of Europe, we also have a huge problem of men coming out of the labor force. So between aging and, and, and men dropping out of the labor force, what's that mean for like the stickiness of inflation? Yeah, absolutely. This is absolutely long term and we are all essentially long term investors, at least we should be long as much as it's exciting to talk about last <laughs> number for employment and inflation. You're absolutely right. We should all stay focused on what is my long term strategy? What are the long term trends that I have a good understanding of? And if there's one long term trend where we have a really all of us in markets, a good understanding, it is an understanding of demographics. And exactly as you're highlighting, the challenge is that the aging population globally is a challenge everywhere. It's worse in Japan and it's worse in Europe, but it's also a fairly a negative scenario overall with more people retiring in the US over the next many years. So that does indeed, exactly as you're pointing out, Drew, point to more risk to the upside to inflation because you will simply have a larger part of the population that are unproductive, meaning not adding to uh, keeping inflation low. And if, if, if anything, instead, simply consuming and not adding in terms of tax payments, not adding in terms of GDP. Uh, and that does have some implications for how we should all be thinking about. Also, from a structural perspective, there are some upward pressures on inflation. So just to summarize our whole discussion here, our near-term risk is that there are some near-term upside pressures to inflation coming from the labor market being strong, also from that it might take a longer time to get inflation down. And the second issue, even not only the cyclical arguments for why inflation may be sticky, there's also some long-term arguments such as deglobalization with China playing less of a role, meaning being more segmentation in global trade, and also on the demographic front where we also might have some upward pressure on inflation. So therefore the inflation outlook, and, and I know you have had this thesis for a while, Tim, and I completely agree with yeah. this, we are entering a regime where the inflation outlook is just more uncertain. Um, I think the Fed hopes that inflation will be soon back at 2% and then we could just put that away and say now we're back to where we were before. But there's certainly both cyclical risks why inflation is going to be more persistent at the moment. And there's also some structural risks, again, demographics and deglobalization yeah. that might be putting some upward pressure on inflation for investors over the next three to five years. Yeah, I, I read the the Manoj Prada and Charles Goodhart book, the, the Great Demographic Reversal, and that really made quite an impression on me. Those guys are uh, are, are impressive. Goodhart's especially impressive at, at at his age. I agree, and that book was absolutely. I can only recommend that, uh, yeah. as you say, because I think that's a really good very plain English simple read in terms of what are the challenges with demographics and why might this actually be more inflationary going forward. All right, one not quite oddball off the wall question, but a little off the beaten path. I've got kind of a pet theory that this great wealth transfer that even with the million people in the United States who died in COVID and, and, and with, with retirees um, handing their money over to the next generation has maybe created more liquidity and maybe created more consumer demand 
than we anticipated. Do you see that? Do you hear that in any of your work? Is there is this just a stupid theory is, or, or do you agree? It, no, this makes complete sense. The way I think about it exactly as you're saying is that in response to COVID, we basically spent five trillion more on the fiscal side and five trillion more on the monetary policy side. So one embarrassingly simple way of looking at it is that we threw, meaning the government threw $10 trillion at the US economy during COVID. And now we are now waking up with a lot of inflation and now they're suddenly trying to, hey, we want to pull this back. Uh, on the monetary policy side, they have been able to pull that back, both with QT and raising interest rates and forward guidance and trying to tighten monetary policy. But the problem is that on the fiscal side, it could have been pulled back in theory by higher tax rates. That's not what has happened. But that money is sitting on balance sheets in households and in corporates and also in the banking sector. And that's all a significant tailwind to the economy. So I completely agree that the policy response to COVID gave such a significant amount of liquidity and cash in the global economy, but most notably here in the US economy. And by the way, the US response on those monetary and fiscal sides was so much bigger than the response we saw in Europe that we're now really struggling with trying to get that money out of the system that was thrown at the system during COVID in an attempt to try to get inflation under control. And I think the conclusion and maybe a good way to summarize our whole debate here is that that's going to take some time. 10 trillion is a lot of money and the Fed has started raising rates, they're starting QT, but as we know on the monetary policy side, they're doing things to get all that liquidity back. The simplest way of thinking about this, that instead of us in meaning in the household sector, having money in our checking accounts, the Fed wants us to take that money and put it into money market accounts or CDs, other things. That's why interest rates keep going up. Likewise, when it comes to fiscal expansion, a lot of that money ended up also in banking accounts and as asset price appreciations that the Fed which is the only game in town from a policy perspective, is also now trying to take out of the system in an attempt to try to get inflation down. So I think that theory makes good sense. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, we, we need to cut it there. Tristan, I could ask you follow-up questions all day, and so could Drew. Uh, I thank you so much for your time. Uh, congratulations on your new endeavor there at Apollo, and uh, good luck, and I hope to see you soon in the city or something. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Torsten. Thank you. Bye-bye. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.